Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zorza. I am with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and I'm joined by my friends. Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute. And? And? Dalibur Rohash from AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Today, we're joined by um, Lydia Tomkiev, who is a journalist on financial and international affairs and also um, has ample Ukraine heritage. Um, she wrote a fantastic piece um, recently for the Christian Science Monitor, but, but I'll let um, Dalibor say more about that. Well, thank you. Thank you, Yulia. Um, so we are not going to talk about hedge funds investing or real assets, which is what Lydia covers in her day job with, with the Financial Times. Uh, we're going to talk about her um, SES monitor piece, Letter from the Diaspora, Why Ukraine Will Endure, which uh, does a few things that I think are useful uh, besides being beautifully written. Uh, it, first of all, dispels uh, one myth that I think is common not only among people who are you know rooting for the Kremlin, but also among fairly well-informed and intelligent observers of, of the situation, namely that uh, Ukraine as a political nation is a very recent creation. I mean, one version I've heard of this is that it was really the 2014 Russian aggression that created Ukrainian nationhood, almost as if out of previously deeply divided or, or or confused confused country i think that that your piece drives a stake through that idea very very effectively by by looking at your family experience and uh and it also uh, i think sort of shook my own notion of america as a as a very effective melting pot in which ethnic identities disappear very quickly over you know one or two generations like you, you said in the piece that your first language was Ukrainian, although it really was the generation of your grandparents who who immigrated to America, which which I found was quite striking. So, so just tell us a little bit about your you know family background and and experience. We obviously link to the piece in the in the show notes. Uh, your your grandparents came here after the Second World War, settled in in on New Jersey, New York. Uh, tri-state area and uh and so so I, I wonder like how that shaped you growing up uh how 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 much uh way do you attributed yourself to your ukrainian heritage uh growing up and 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 how that positioned you to to think about you know the events in ukraine since 2014 onwards yeah, so I grew up in the Ukrainian-American uh, diaspora, uh, which is spread around the globe. Um, the United States has over a million Ukrainian-Americans. Um, Canada has a very large population throughout Europe, really where people, a lot of people were able to land post-World War II. So Australia and Argentina also have large Ukrainian diasporas. Um, and as you mentioned, Ukrainian was my first language growing up. It was a very conscious choice on my parents' um, behalf to both 
ensure that I would speak very clean and good Ukrainian. It's not an easy language, um, but also because it was incredibly culturally important to them. I was born before the Soviet Union had collapsed. And I think with my grandparents' generation um, and that huge wave of immigrants that came to the United States after World War II, my grandparents sat around displaced persons camps in Germany for several years, you know, waiting to immigrant, immigrate. There was an intense, deep fear with them that the Soviet period would wipe out Ukrainian language, history, culture. Um, you know, as a kid, sometimes I thought maybe they were over overcompensating, right? Like I wanted to play soccer and watch Saturday morning cartoons. I had to go to Ukrainian school for four hours to do history, reading, writing, culture, Ukrainian dance classes. I learned how to play the 65-string traditional Ukrainian bandura. Um, but I am so immensely grateful for all of that, right? I am so grateful that when I travel to Ukraine to work as a reporter, to visit family there, I can speak Ukrainian with them without any trouble. Um, it was a huge um, gift. And I think, you know, in writing the piece for the Monitor in the last, you know, 30 plus days since the war has started, I have had these conversations with a lot of other members of the Ukrainian diaspora about how we're so thankful that our identity, our connection to Ukraine was something people were proud of and that they never let go of while also being, you know, fiercely proud to live in America and so grateful for the opportunities um, America has given to all of us. Um, you know, and I think you are very right to point out that there has long been sort of this confusion around Ukraine um, with a lot of people in the sense that growing up, I'd often have people say to me, oh, you speak Ukrainian, so that's basically Russian, that's the same thing, right? And, you know, I'd have to, of course, say not at all the same, totally different languages, totally different cultures. Um, so it's something a lot of us in diaspora communities have faced, faced for a very long time. Um, you know, and that being said, too, I think one thing that a lot of people in the West have a very hard time wrapping their minds around is that in Ukraine, people can and do speak multiple languages completely fluently. They switch between Ukrainian and Russian super easily. As a reporter, I've never had any issues when I've been there asking someone, hey, can we do this interview in Ukrainian? That's the language I'm, you know, most comfortable in. And, you know, it's never been an issue. People just switch back and forth. Um, you know, most of my family there, they don't just speak two languages. They speak three or four, um, right? So it's something I think a lot of people have had a hard time understanding. I think some of the maps um, prior to the war starting that were published breaking up Ukraine against um, along language lines are just very unhelpful. I've met soldiers who are fighting for Ukraine who grew up in Russian-speaking homes, and they're willing to die for Ukraine. So putting them on a linguistic map doesn't really, you know, show their identity, show sort of how they feel about being Ukrainian. I wonder if I could uh, ask you to, to take a couple of steps back from 2014 for, for two reasons. There's also a notion out there held on, principally on the right, but I think across the, the spectrum that uh, Ukraine is a, a sort of, uh, or at least the borders of Ukraine are uh, sort of um, uh, uh, fiction of the Soviet era, um, uh, and that uh, um, uh, again, this, that 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 there's that the in unique Ukrainian identity is somehow manufactured or a product uh, of that, and then and then a second one, and people may not even be a too aware of this, but is maybe a reason that for the sort of denazification 
propaganda is the uh, deeper roots of a German-speaking population, particularly in, in Western Ukraine. So if you, as long as you're giving us a, a history lesson in Ukrainian identity, uh, I think it would be helpful, particularly for an American audience, to, to touch on some of these deeper roots. Yeah, and I mean, you are right to point out that the borders in the region have shifted. You know, the town one of my grandmothers was born in is in today Poland. Um, it's actually the town of Medica in which we're seeing just thousands of Ukrainians flow into now to escape the current war. Um, but, you know, borders have shifted in a lot of European nations, too, I think is very important <laughs> to point out. And Ukraine has had a history, right, in 19... 18, sort of the first modern era of uh, trying to establish a Ukrainian republic. Sidhi Plohi, the Harvard historian in his book um, that's very good, Gates of Europe on Ukraine's Modern History, you know, points out that sort of in these post-war periods, Ukraine was always the unanswered question of Europe in that area, that there has been have been these quests for Ukrainian statehood before. And, you know, we finally do get that modern Ukrainian states, the borders in 1991, but there was history there before. There were attempts at statehood before. There are long histories of Ukrainian art and culture, right? I think sort of now a lot of people are reading more about the executed renaissance in Kharkiv that happened in the 1930s of those writers and intellectuals, many of whom were writing beautiful poetry about what it meant to be Ukrainian and loving the Ukrainian state. Um, that history has been there. And I think you're also very right to point out Ukraine does have sort of an interesting multicultural history. There are, you know, populations that speak Hungarian, Romanian. Ukraine borders a lot of other nations and has, um, you know, those identities and, and those connections with other places as well. My grandparents were both, you know, German speakers growing up in Ukraine um, as well. Um, and some of that is just sort of positioning of where Ukraine is on a map. Um, but that, you know, does not mean it hasn't been its own place, its own identity for a long time. Let me ask you something you, you kind of touched upon a couple of times on this. To me, um, identity, national identity is um, defined also in relationship to others. And I think in Europe, particularly in Western Europe, um, the fact that um, we have a Ukraine and other Eastern European countries that are mm, much more um, heterogeneous than, than is defined traditionally makes a lot of people question whether that's, that's a stable national identity, when in Eastern Europe we know that that this is part of our identity, but a lot of how we define ourselves, particularly in Eastern Europe, but in other places too, is according to how we relate to others. Um, and, and it becomes really complicated in Eastern Europe. And I'd love to hear from your experiences in Saturday school, how how you learned about that. And I'll, I'll ask you kind of two or give you two examples to um, to frame the discussion a bit. Um, my I'm from Romania. My, one of my grand grandmothers is from uh, a territory that belonged at some point to Ukraine, at some point to Romania. So we have we have ties there. Um, but then on the other side, 
until 2014, because of Russian disinformation, massive in Ukraine and beyond, it, it hits the, the entire region all the time, the majority of, um, of Ukrainians were thinking that the number one security threat, if you'd like, from the neighboring country stems from Romania, because obviously that's what Russia does, divide and conquer. Um, so I wonder how you learned about about others, um, neighboring countries and um, competing identities um, when you were growing up and particularly how what you learned about, I don't even want to call it Russia because it's, you know, that that changed in time too, how you learned about Moscow, um, what, what the heritage has been of what Moscow has done during Soviet times um, to Ukraine um, and how you managed as a kid um, to digest that as part of the, the inherent problems um, that that Ukrainian identity has with the threats coming from outside and how they're being portrayed. Yeah, I mean, we could teach several college classes on, on both of those <laughs> complicated questions. I mean, I'll start with your, your second one on sort of Russia and the heritage of, of Moscow. Um, my mom was actually asked, um, I grew up in Sacramento, California, which had a huge fourth wave of immigrants that came sort of right before the Soviet collapse and, and right after. She was the one asked to teach Ukrainian history when the Ukrainian Saturday School was started because a lot of folks did not feel confident enough in teaching Ukrainian history after having gone through the Soviet system in Ukraine. Right. Um, so I think that that's always a factor that's there. Um, and, and, you know, we learned sort of what you would if you opened up a, a Sidhi Pluhi book now about the origins of cave and Rus and, you know, that sort of name and, and you know, sort of the way I think that has been weaponized today in the information war trying to, you know, point to a shared and common history or a history from the Russian side that, um, you know, kind of subsumes Ukraine. Um, in a way uh, that's that's very harmful, I think. Um, and definitely we did learn about sort of competing identities, neighbors, other ethnic groups um, in Ukraine. You know, I think the same is very important to point out about Russia. Russia has vast other ethnic groups and populations within its borders um, as well that I don't think get mentioned or, or talked about too often. Um, and, you know, I think sort of the way this is looked at today when I talk about, um, you know, talk to people in Ukraine, talk to my cousins, they have a very clear understanding of Ukrainian history today and what they're learning about their roots, um, about the way history is being taught in school. I think, you know, 2014 sort of was an inflection point in Ukraine in the sense that, you know, some people that may have been Russian speaking at home decided to become Ukrainian speakers or decided to acknowledge, you know, their identity more um, than they had in the past. Um, and, you know, have to remember, it's only been an independent nation since 1991. So the way identities, nationalities, nationalism forms, I mean, it takes time. It's very different. I oftentimes point to people, you know, how many republics did France have <laughs> before we got to where we are today, right? Um, so, you know, from that perspective, um, you know, I think a lot will also change coming out of the current war we're in now um, and the way um, Ukrainians look at themselves, I think, the way they look at Russia, just even just, you know, things I'm reading now, this is a very painful break. And I, I don't know sort of what that relationship, what that dynamic will look like going forward. 
mayor of Kiev, um, Vitaly Klitschko, said last week or, or two weeks ago that he admired um, Israeli defense forces and, and, and made this sort of parallel about the possible future of Ukraine as a nation that has to be you know, armed to the teeth and ready to fight a much more numerous uh, belligerent neighbors in order to, to survive. And when I was reading your piece, I was so struck by two other parallels imperfect as they may be between between Ukraine and, and and Israel, namely that you both have you know large and vibrant uh diasporas uh that have a sort of real and strong attachment to the to the country and and and, and both places have you know the a fairly traumatic genocidal event as the centerpiece of, of the of the modern history. Again, like I'm not trying to like compare the two but it is very rarely appreciated, I think, in the West, even after Anne Applebaum's book, that 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 that, that Holodomor was was a no of 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 the magnitude that it really was. That you had between four and six million people uh, killed in a regime orchestrated, politically motivated famine, right, with the purpose of exterminating a chunk of of the population that was politically problematic. And and I presume you yourself had to go to the Saturday school to learn about this, that this was not, that was not something that was commonly discussed in, you know, U.S. elementary or, 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 or secondary school curricula. Um, I'm not, not, not sure what, you know, what my question really is, uh, but, but if you can sort of like chew no, on. I, I understand what I have to say. Yeah. Please comment. <laughs> Don't you agree with me? Where you're coming from in the sense that I think in the United States, so much of our, our history focuses on Western Europe, right? And the losses in World War II were immense on, you know, the Eastern Front um, as well. And yeah, you're right. There, There is trauma there, right? I think the trauma of the Holodomor is an immense one. Um, you know, the day my grandmother died, I remember we went to her home and her refrigerator was chock full of food, right? She had those horrific memories of childhood um, that stuck with her for her entire life and with so many um, in Ukraine. Um, And, you know, thankfully there is a museum to the Holodomor now in Ukraine. They've done a lot of work to preserve memories, um, oral histories that are very important. As you mentioned, Anne Applebaum's book, very important. Um, And, you know, I think every family sort of, as I point out in my piece too, has these horrific traumas from World War II. Um, just, you know, every single one of my grandparents has stories in our extended family. Uh, a priest was shot by the Soviets. I mean, this is just something that is in the history of every Ukrainian family um, and, and is there. And, um, you know, I'm very thankful now to see more scholarship. You know, um, Anne Applebaum's book was very important. I think Timothy Snyder has done a lot of writing on the region. There's a lot of young, younger academics now diving into archives in Ukraine, which is really heartening um, because I think there's just so much more to be told about this region um, that hasn't been written yet. Lydia, I wish you could tell us a bit or speculate a bit or inform us a bit um, uh, about the role of the church in modern Ukraine. I mean, there's been such a split. A, most Americans, uh, you know, have only a, a passing understanding of orthodoxy to begin with. Um, and of course, many of us are now sort of appalled at uh, Putin's sort of manipulation and and actually the sort of, uh, uh, you know, holy war aspect of uh, Russian propaganda and so on and so forth. We don't really 
see uh, a, a balancing, uh, you know, sort of nationalism in our understanding of uh, Ukrainian orthodoxy. But again, our understanding is pretty shallow. So if you could also um, give us a, a few paragraphs on, uh, on yeah, that this, subject, I think it would be good. This was sort of, I think, a, an important uh, move towards the end of Petro Poroshenko's presidency. So he was the president um, right uh, prior to Volodymyr Zelensky coming in, um, which was to sort of get uh, recognition, and I'm, you know, not an expert here with how all of this <laughs> works in the church and the way this works, but to make sure there was a, you know, cave patriarchy separate from Moscow. Um, and there were a lot of complaints. There was a lot of articles written in Ukrainian media since, you know, 2014 about, um, you know, sort of churches under Moscow not supporting the state or not supporting Ukrainian armed forces. So there was definitely sort of a schism there. And, you know, I think the the church, both, um, you know, Catholic church and, and Orthodox priests in Ukraine have played a really important role since 2014. I actually wrote a story back in, in 2015 um, about how a lot of soldiers coming back from war were, you know, telling their priests in confession about um, their issues, PTSD from war. Um, and the priests didn't kind of know what to do with this. And there was some, you know, really great um, connections they made with psychologists and psychiatrists in Ukraine's priests working with them to get materials, actually some of them U.S. Army materials translated into Ukrainian for family members to understand what was happening to people returning from the front. Um, and I just thought that was such a fascinating story, priests realizing they didn't quite have the tools to help people going sort of to psychiatrists in Ukraine, working with them. Um, so that dynamic, the church isn't, plays an important role um, in Ukraine. A lot of people are very religious. I mean, you see some, um, there have been some incredible photos and videos from the war of chaplains on the front lines. Um, so yeah, I think you are right to point to this. Um, there probably should be a deep book written <laughs> on exactly what's happened over the last, you know, sort of decade with that and, and just really the the schism too with the Moscow along the church lines. Yeah, I think uh, this is a cue for us to consider doing an episode on Orthodox churches and their role in politics. Um, I followed this a little bit for a few months when I did a postdoc in Black Sea security and focused actually ended up focusing on Orthodox churches. And one of the case studies was that autocephaly of Ukraine and how much Russia pushed against that, including in Constantinople and Istanbul um, at the mother church of, of orthodoxy. And uh, so it's it's um, fascinating and looking at it from, from the Russian perspective too and how now countries are pushing against that. We recently saw the um, president of uh, Georgia saying that the Russian Orthodox Church, after the support for the Putin regime in this war, should be considered um, Satan on Earth or something. Don't quote me on that. Um, but but um, but it's it's really fascinating to see how Orthodox national churches have played for centuries and continue to do so. Um, such a big role in politics and identity making, much more so than the Catholic, which has a different hierarchy because we have the Vatican. Um, for Orthodox churches, it's the national that is um, that is the most important. So that move of Poroshenko, I think, um, 
was one of the things that must have um, upset, to say it elegantly, um, <laughs> must have uh, triggered um, Putin a lot in that too, as uh, in the context of him instrumentalizing church to the maximum in, in cooperation with the FSB and all of that. But moving on from that, I was wondering, you allude in, to that in your in your um, uh, article um, for the Science Monitor, about, and, and you talked about it um, in the context of, in the context of Hollow the Mod a bit about how traumatic um, that experience has been, and how trauma sort of um, mutates from one generation to another. Talking about your grandparents, I know in Ukraine it's been the most intense. We see it. All of our grandmothers and grandparents have horrible experiences from from the Second World War and Russian occupation beyond the region. Ukraine is the strongest, and so. When the invasion started four and something weeks ago, one of my first thoughts was exactly that. What will this major, major conflict and this these atrocities that we see, what, what will this do to the next two, three generations of Ukrainians within Ukraine and in the diaspora? How will they be able to to not overcome, because that's not going to be possible, but process um, this relationship with Russia and um, and basically go, you know, live a life um, beyond the war that is not deeply uh, impregnated through this through this collective trauma. So I know you're 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 the generation just born um, before the end of the Cold War just like me but but with your Saturday school with your unique experience um, as a Ukrainian American and and with um, the experiences that you describe in your paper um, over the last few weeks um, with um, with people reaching out and all of that I wonder how how you see this unfolding can can you kind of guide us through a process in which the war has ended and what this will mean for you and the next generation, um, for your generation and the next generation to come. Yeah, I mean, I wish this war would end. It's my biggest wish right now. It's, um, you know, I'm very privileged to be sitting in the United States. My, you know, it hasn't been easy looking at my phone constantly every day, seeing you know, if my messages have been read by by relatives, Saturday was especially difficult. Um, the Russians bombed a city in which I have family, and there was a five minute period where they didn't respond to my message. And you go through the absolute worst in your mind when that happens, right? Um, I don't know what this looks like and how this ends. I there's going to be such a huge, huge need, I think, for all kinds of therapy, uh, you know, you see just children already in Poland in interviews, the way they're processing this, and it is just so sad and traumatic. We've seen, you know, cities completely razed to the ground. How do we rebuild them? I think in a lot of conversations, um, you know, I've had with other Ukrainian friends who have family that have left some towns, there, as of right now, is an immense desire to want to go back. Hmm. Um, the longer this goes on, I think that does become a question in certain areas that have been completely destroyed, what rebuilding looks like, how do we get enough support, are, you know, their 
interesting models out there that can be applied to Ukraine um, and other more recent conflicts to help people deal with this um, because the trauma here, I think, is just immense and the need is going to be so huge. Um, you know, I wish I kind of had a better answer for you. Um, I don't know how this plays out at this point. I don't know how this ends. Um, and it's just, you know, kind of getting worse every day with the stories we're now hearing. There was a very good Washington Post article today about some of the people who'd managed to get out of Irpin um, in the outskirts of Kiev and what they lived through there. Um, and it's just horrifying. Um, I think it's, you know, really important that we all keep paying attention to Ukraine as this goes on longer. That's one of my biggest fears is that this will sort of drop off from the headlines um, and that, you know, people will sort of forget about it um, when, you know, until there is some kind of end date to the war, the war doesn't really end, right? Andriy Kurkov, the very good Ukrainian, both fiction and nonfiction writer, just, you know, had a piece in The New Yorker recently where he wrote that line, right? The war doesn't end on a certain date. It never does. Um, the trauma will be there. Um, it will continue to be there. And it's something that, you know, Ukraine will have to deal with for a long time, unfortunately. Maybe one quick thought on that, uh, which is that I, I, I was born and brought up in what was then Czechoslovakia uh, in 1968. Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia, occupied it for over 20 years, uh, strengthening the sort of Brezhnev-backed communist uh, regime. Uh, it was civilians were killed in August of 1968 in the subsequent months, but it was a completely different order of magnitude from what is currently unfolding in in Ukraine. Yet, um, 54 years later, it's basically all that my mother ever talks about. I mean, the the sort of intensity of of, of that sort of historic memory. Uh, not not among all Czechs and Slovaks, but but among a good fraction of them, especially those who have personal memories of 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 of, of the time, are very strong. So, so I think it is almost inevitable that that, that Russia, in whatever political shape or form it ends up existing uh, by the end of the century, will will still carry that that stain and. Uh, and that it will be sort of seen through that prism by by its neighbors, bearing you know unexpected shifts like 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 Germany after the Second World War. But I wanted to ask you um, one additional thing before we release you, uh, namely that you are involved in helping Ukraine remotely from from New York by organizing aid efforts, by you know mobilizing sort of public attention to, 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 to what's happening in, in Ukraine. Uh, there are clearly any number of charities that are worth supporting. I sent money to the defense ministry a uh, couple, of, couple of weeks ago and to, to other organizations. But if you have any thoughts about how you know, Americans could best help, uh, please do, do share those with us. If anybody's got any spare MiG-29s, I think we can find a home for them. <laughs> Yes, besides uh, you know, sending javelins, which require an export uh, <laughs> license, um, which, you know, ironically, I've learned so much about armored vests and platings and what can be exported in recent weeks and what goes into a proper IFAC first aid kit with burn gel and sterile gauzes, right? This is the language the diaspora here is speaking. Um, mm -hmm. 
now. And uh, yeah, thanks for this question. Um, to be totally transparent, I volunteer with a group in New York City called Razum for Ukraine. Razum means together. It was a group um, formed in 2014 um, after the revolution and start of the war in the East. Um, they've been doing amazing work getting uh, tactical medical aid into Ukraine, working with partners um, on the ground. They kind of have all that on their website. They're a 501c3, so I've pointed a lot of Americans there too who are you know, kind of concerned about uh, making sure they're donating to a legitimate um, organization. They also put up a really helpful link tree, um, I want to say a day or two before the war started. It's um, linktr.ee forward slash Razum for Ukraine. And that actually, as you mentioned, also does have links to if you want to donate directly to the National Bank of Ukraine. There's some um, nonprofits on there like Come Back Alive that are on the ground in Ukraine uh, supporting the armed uh, forces and, and territorial defense units. Um, of Ukraine. Um, and another group here I'd recommend in the U.S. too is based in Philadelphia. They've been around for a very long time. It's the United Ukrainian American Relief Committee. They resettled earlier generations of Ukrainian refugees, including you know some of my friends' grandparents themselves. Um, so they're also doing um, a lot of work. Um, and as a journalist, I would be remiss if I did not mention the Cave Independent. Um, they are one of the best English language um, news sources in Ukraine. They have a GoFundMe and a Patreon. Uh, you know, I think supporting all kinds of media in Ukraine right now is going to be very important. The ad market has collapsed essentially with the war. Um, so there are other efforts out there, but I think that's one, you know, for an audience that, that reads, um, writes, speaks in English is a really important one. Um, and then, yeah, if you're looking for other things, I've been pointing a lot of people to the Ukrainian Museum in New York and the Ukrainian Institute in London. They both have um, pages on their websites now listing a bunch of different organizations, kind of depending on how you want to aim donations. Um, you know, museums in Ukraine have been asking for help to safeguard artifacts. There's a lot of ways you can help right now. Lydia, I wonder if I could squeeze in one last impossible question before we let you go. Uh, my favorite kind. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, so one thing that has been, at least to me, so powerful about uh, President Zelensky and the Ukrainian message of the last couple months is is how powerful its yearning to be accepted as part of the West is. I mean, this really seems like uh, you know a, a make or break moment, not just for Ukraine, but for the whole enterprise of you know liberal uh, and free government. Um, but I I worry so much about what will happen uh, if we fail this test, and in particular, what will happen to Ukraine's desire to, to not only be independent, but to be liberal and, and free and part of the you know, cultural West. Uh, again, I know it's an impossibly speculative question, but I'd be interested in your views. You know, I think Ukraine has chosen its path forward already, right? It is to be a liberal democracy. I, you know, have pointed out to a lot of people that Zelensky's Ukraine's sixth president, right? People are very active in debating there. You know, there's already memes. I think the one bright spot in a lot of this has been the incredible funny memes 
that Ukrainians have been posting throughout all of this that I see every day on Instagram. And, and you know, one of the ones I saw was basically the war ends. We're still going to debate about who our next president is, you know, like just because Zelensky has been an amazing leader right now doesn't mean. Just interject. So Giselle is a resident expert on, on, on tractors and all things tractors. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Lego I go has all the tractor, tractor memes. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, and I think that's kind of a funny way of pointing out that, you know, Ukrainians are very used to debate. They are going to vote however they see fit in the next election that comes. Sort of the existential question, you know, that you posed on what happens with democracy in the world, I think is very much there and is to be determined. Um, Ukrainians are watching very closely in their media. I see in Facebook comments from lots of people I've interviewed over the years on the aid they're getting and the support they're getting from different European nations. Uh, I think in in that vein, I saw today um, or yesterday something from Zelensky in an interview he's done for regional media saying Russia should look out, and I guess not just Russia, but but the world should look out for who is going to be the next president of Ukraine because he or she will likely be even more clear on um, how to represent Ukrainians, if that's even possible. So I guess that's a that's a good note that um, underscores and exactly the point you were making. Let's not let go of the guy we got for the moment, okay. <laughs> Um, all right. So, um, Lydia Tomkiev, many thanks for joining us and for shedding some light on Ukrainian identity. From me, Yulia Zhoja, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and Dalib Rohaj. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.